to Tigers in Translation, the podcast that tells Princeton students' stories in their own voices. In this special episode, we will hear from five students as they reflect on the complexities of their language backgrounds. Their voices speak to the nuanced ways language relates to identity. How does learning, losing, or maintaining a language change you? What does it mean to own a language? My name is Genrietta, and this is my story. Masha doesn't have a cat. Yima doesn't have a dog. As the lesson progressed, I was getting more and more confused. Not because of the complicated genitive case ending used in the examples, but because of the simplest part of the sentences, doesn't have, or in Russian, нет. In the does not have structure, I had grown up saying нету. У Маши нету кошки. Not, у Маши нет кошки. So when my professor kept repeating нет, I was lost. That is, until I asked her, what about нету in these types of sentences? She smiled knowingly and said, Genrietta, нету is not really a Russian word. It isn't used in academic contexts. It's just an informal and technically incorrect way of saying нет. This revelation baffled me. I was so used to saying that I thought using was the only right way to form such a sentence. Many heritage speakers have experienced similar grammatical discoveries. Heritage speakers are a unique class of language learners whose relationship to their heritage language is often complex. As a Russian heritage speaker, I had never studied the language in an academic setting before my freshman year of college. And yet many of my earliest memories are in Russian. After being born in the United States, I moved to Russia and spent the first seven years of my life there before moving back to Arkansas. To me, Russian was, and remains, a language of childhood, of scraped knees, a language in which, although I couldn't eloquently write, I dared to make mistakes. In other language classes, I was used to being penalized for my mistakes. Sure, during regular class discussions, my grammatical errors weren't counted against me. But when it came time for presentations or tests, every imperfection in my speech was noted in red. This approach to language teaching didn't quite make me afraid to make mistakes, but it did make me conceptualize mistakes as something I couldn't afford, something I had to pay for each time one was made. Princeton's Russian for Heritage Speakers sequence introduced me to an entirely new language pedagogy, one in which mistakes were not penalized. There was a practical purpose for this grading policy. In heritage speaker classes, students come in with vastly different levels of language exposure, making it nearly impossible to construct a fair grading scheme that also punishes students for grammatical errors. But there was also a less practical, more profound reason for this policy. The class was taught as though Russian was ours. Ours to make mistakes in without risk of penalty, much like toddlers fumble through their native tongue until they master speech. My professor called our heritage speaker class Class для носителей языка, which roughly translates to Class for Native Speakers, the word heritage notably replaced. The Russian word nasitil, native speaker, shares a root with the verb nasit, to carry. What better verb to describe what a language means to its speakers, native and heritage alike? 
I carry Russian with me always, a constant companion. This is, perhaps, the universal truth of heritage speakers. Regardless of our language proficiency, our languages are part of us. At the end of the year, my professor left us with the following message. Never forget that Russian is yours. To all the heritage speakers out there, never doubt that your language is yours, too. My name is Anika Udin, and this is my story. Cardigan. I wanted to fit in so badly. In fourth grade, everyone who was anyone owned something from Delia's. Yet another teen chick clothing line with inflated price tags on items clearly made from cheap materials and labor. But as I scoured the online catalog... I fell in love with the cardigan section, ready to bring it up when my friends would once again talk about shopping. Cardigan, I had said. They laughed. They wouldn't tell me how to actually pronounce the word correctly. They told more and more girls. Now I know, this level of bullying isn't that deep. Fourth grade me moved on after a few days and learned how to actually pronounce the word. But that moment still stays with me, over a decade later, because it reinforced a perspective on language that I was born into. One, knowing how to speak English well was critical to my success. And two, currently, my English was pretty weak. To unpack that last part, let's take a few steps back and talk context. I'm Anika Udin, first daughter of two Bangladeshi immigrants who have invested everything in me in order to provide for the education and privileges I've received. They focused on teaching me English as early on as possible, bringing me into the public library almost every afternoon. Communication is a vital skill for anyone's success. I saw it pan out in real life. I was the one dealing with customer service, writing legal documents while growing up, I internalized my parents' drive and obsession around English to the extent that I took two English classes in junior year. I dismissed Bangla, the language my parents spoke, my mother tongue. I could understand it when people talked, picking up from context clues, intonation, and after hearing it for years. But I never took the steps to truly learn the language. I didn't value it. I didn't mind suffering through the occasional family gathering where people told me I needed to learn. In fact, I never would have thought learning any language beyond English would be important until I was in a setting where few people spoke English well, if at all, which was on Bridge Year. Bridge Year is a cultural immersion gap year program that Princeton hosts for 40 incoming freshmen in five different locations around the world. Seeking adventure, I applied and found myself starting a nine-month stay in Indonesia instead of college. Prior to this, I had no exposure to Indonesia, its culture or language, besides what I had searched on the internet. But there, I took language classes at a local university. These classes, however, weren't intensive nor critical to me in the beginning. After all, would I really be able to pick up a language in nine months? 
Plus, everyone around me still valued English. Indonesians always wanted to practice their English with me. I can't pinpoint the exact moment when my apathy to languages beyond English changed, but it was a mixture of a lot of things. I couldn't communicate with anyone beyond the basics of the language, besides the other students on bridge year. I was living in a homestay and wanted to be close to the family. Language was the first step. I was working at an NGO where most of the relevant documentation wasn't in English, nor did anyone speak English well. If I were to live here, I needed to know Indonesian. But it became deeper than a necessity. I wanted to be able to connect with the Indonesian culture. Being able to speak the language would allow me to be even more intentional about cultural immersion. It was one less degree away in sharing space with the community that I was now a part of. It brought joy to those communities to see my active participation in learning to speak their language. They recognized even more value and unique cultural identity in their language once I prioritized learning to speak with them. With COVID pushing us to return home, I reflected on how language was an access point to culture and how I had neglected my own heritage by never learning to speak Bangla. On top of that, the war for independence for Bangladesh, a war my own father lived through, was about language. How could I not be able to speak Bangla? With the world closed down due to the pandemic, I made a plan to learn Bangla. I would commit to mango languages for at least 30 minutes a day. I would ask my parents to speak only in Bangla to me. I would try speaking until my accent got better. I would label objects in the house with Bangla. I would watch Bengali films. None of these plans ever fully came to fruition. Despite being locked in from the pandemic, I still felt the impact of an English-centric environment. There was no urgency for me to learn Bangla. Who else besides my parents would I speak to on a daily basis in Bangla? Even with this passion and newfound understanding from Indonesia, I'm no closer to being able to speak Bangla today than I was before I had gone on bridge year. It feels strange to me that I know more about a place, its culture, and its language, and that I've spent more time in that place than the place where my ancestors are from. Realistically, without being surrounded by a Bengali community where there is strong value add to my everyday life to speak, learning another language is just yet another thing on my ever-increasing laundry list of things to do. Plus, I have limited access to free educational resources, and it's just difficult to ask a parent to teach you in such a formal way. It began to feel hopeless. My culture still feels a degree further apart because of how American my everyday life has become. And perhaps that's what caused the obsession with English in the first place. I was so caught up with trying to fit in that I became hyper aware of my vocabulary, including words like cardigan, even to this day, I do a double take in my mind to make sure that I say that word correctly, cardigan. Things haven't changed, even armed with this awareness of the importance of language beyond English. So I'm still trying to figure out 
What can I do to make that change? Learning Spanish started off as a thought on a whim, a getaway from reality, and a hopeful glance to the future. Four years into grad school, I was desperate to see some progress taking shape. Taking Spanish from scratch seems to be a reasonable idea. I've always wanted to travel to South America at some point. Given that I'd like to focus on my future job search within the states, and Spanish is the second largest spoken language here, I've got more than enough reasons to reap the benefit of my free tuition provided by the grad school. Learning foreign languages has never been my thing. I would usually half joke about it by saying, "Because my Chinese is too good, it's taking too much brain out of me." I dropped out of Spanish one or two once everything abruptly got shifted online in March of 2020. Yet I found myself doing Spanish one or three, then forward to one or seven in the spring of 2021, despite them being online still. At some point, having something virtual was better than having nothing at all. It turned out that Spanish one or seven might have been one of the most American experiences I've ever had since coming here. The course is entirely constructed around Hispanic livinghood in the United States, their history, culture, and contemporary issues that affect their life. The identity of Latinos was one of the first topics being discussed in the course. We had to learn a bit about the hyphen, those who have some Hispanic heritages but grew up in the、U、United States, through poems and other artworks. Initially, I found them interesting as they sounded very similar to the stories that my Asian American friends have shared with me when they grew up. But I'm Chinese. Identity was never really something that bothered me growing up. I was part of the majority, born and raised in Beijing with all my immediate families in the same city as me. I also speak Mandarin with no accent at all because hey, Beijing dialect is the prestige dialect of Mandarin. Therefore, it surprised me quite a bit when I felt like something clicked inside me when I encountered the sentence, "Nidiaki, nidiaya." I asked myself, "Did this sentence speak to me?" After a major setback in the college entrance exam, I came to the states by myself with English preparation primarily for paper-based exams. Nothing was more important than proving to myself that I could adjust and thrive here. I needed to regain my confidence by acing my English speaking, so I basically shut myself off from making friends with other Chinese-spoken students during college. My adulting essentially happened here in the state in English, a language that neither of my parents speak. My ability to express myself and share my thoughts orally in Chinese was stuck in time. I sometimes feels like language is like a filter of my personality, even. I tend to be more upfront and proactive when speaking English, and perhaps quieter while speaking Chinese. Looking back, I re-examine my long-disguised personality switching between Chinese and English. Oddly, if fortunately, my journey with Spanish has been a blessing. During times where people are physically stranded, it helped me feel connected with others mentally. I formulated some friendships with freshmen who are ten years younger than me through doing proyectos together. 
I bonded with several instructors who also happened to be grad students. Moreover, it has been a much-needed lens for me to reflect on my relationship with my oftentimes unfamiliar hometown after almost two years alone in a foreign country. There have been moments where I questioned myself where I would call home or where I truly belong. Though other times I wonder how much proximity and apartness matters. The common loneliness expressed beautifully through languages attenuates the loneliness itself. In the end, we all share the same humanity, don't we? Hello, my name is Brian Gitai, and this is my story. I've always loved Kiswahili. It was my favorite subject in school for a long time. I even wrote an entire supplement on my Princeton application on a quote from one of my favorite Kiswahili books, Kidagaki Memoisea. But after I graduated from high school, I've only had conversations in pure Kiswahili, probably only a handful of times. Among the Kenyan youth, many people dislike the relatively formal Kiswahili because of the way it was taught in school. They prefer the more light and easygoing shang, which is a mix of Kiswahili, English, and vernacular words drawn from the local languages in Kenya. Not surprisingly, post-high school conversations among the youth in major towns and cities are held in shang. And depending on what part of the country you're in, the language will be filled with specific lingo incorporated from the local languages. Many times the less common words and phrases in specific areas, usually Nairobi, will become a nationwide phenomenon after a local artist uses it in one of their songs. To continue my blossoming relationship with Kiswahili, I decided to look for ways and avenues to keep in touch with the standard language after graduating from high school. So, during the gap year I took after high school, I began translating some documents from English to Kiswahili for a mentor of mine, and then again towards the end of 2020, I began translating for the Africa I know, in short, Taik. A brief aside about Taik, Taik is an organization that was founded by Professor Aji Buso Jiang, now a faculty member in the Coast Department at Princeton. Taik seeks to showcase success stories of African individuals and promote positive documentaries of goings-on on the continent. It has a series of articles that are shared on the website in Kiswahili, Arabic, French, and English. Translating articles has helped me maintain regular intercourse with formal Kiswahili. Going back to the Kamusi, which is Kiswahili for dictionary, to double-check things, trying to figure out a way to translate a specific word into Kiswahili, then staring into space, and trying again, it's a surprisingly refreshing feeling. But at the same time, Shang is also special to me. It's my city's language. It's the language of the hood. And you know, everyone my age wants to be associated with the hood. It's cool. Back home, nothing says hood more than the way you speak Shang. If you speak straight English without dropping some Kiswahili or Shang, you're likely to be dubbed a spoiled rich kid or even worse, a white boy. And no one wants to be called that. Especially not on the streets of Nairobi. I was vaguely familiar with this concept, but it never really hit me until I graduated from high school. I grew up in the suburbs of the city and rarely went into town for long enough periods of time on my own. Again, during the gap year I took, I mostly used matatus, which is public transport, 
to commute to and from town. Ironically, I had French classes at the local Alliance Française in town. It's kind of ironic because another language was the reason I had to take recourse to Shang to find my way around town. In the matatus and around the bus stops, you had to talk and act tough or risk being singled out as a pushover who could be easily swindled into paying a higher fare or be mugged by the local casual pickpockets and hooligans. The trick, I learned, was to power walk, like most of the other people, only faster and with more emphasis on power. And to not only talk in Shang, but to talk with your chest. That way, when you asked the matatu conductor for the fare, you'd be more assured of getting the actual fare. Another common instance where this was and still is necessary is at the local open-air markets when bargaining on the price of a good. To date, I have bought most of my shoes from the same open-air market, from golf shoes to Crocs. And so, after I graduated high school, it was I, not my shrewd and streetwise mother, who had to do the bargaining. It was a bit daunting at first, but I found that I liked the rhythm and vibe of Shang and could speak with my chest convincingly enough to get a good bargain at these markets. Now that I've shared a bit about my interaction with language back home, I would like to continue the tale by sharing a bit about my experience with language since coming to the US and college here. Whereas in Nairobi, I needed to express myself in concise, simple, yet strong phrases. Here in college, in the US, I found that what is expected were long, complex strings of thought that almost invariably began with piggybacking off what person X just said, which in the end often expressed what I could have said in the short, straightforward way that I had become accustomed to. I still feel that I'm at the beginning of my printing experience because of COVID and all, but in the beginning, I found that it was easier to speak with other international students, one, because I didn't have to repeat my name when introducing myself, and two, I didn't have to repeat myself in general either. I don't have anything against having to repeat myself when necessary, but it's hard to go a whole day constantly repeating myself. It seemed like there was only two choices, either exclusively hang out with the international community and only hang out with American students a couple of times, or change the way I speak. And I was definitely not trying to change my accent. I had even sworn to my friends that they shouldn't expect an accent when I would go back home. But thankfully, after the first few weeks, speaking became less repetitive and easier. It seemed to me that all that was needed was to intonate certain words slightly differently than I would have before. Well, this battle with myself to find the right way to speak is still ongoing, but every day I still try and maintain my natural accent, altering only intonation when necessary. It's something that I want to keep the same. I want to stay true to my accent. And of course, speaking Sheng and Kiswahili with my fellow Kenyans whenever I get the chance. As happens with many international students leaving their home to study abroad, I had a certain urge to reconnect with my own culture amidst the constant and sometimes overwhelming influx of foreign and diverse cultures. My rhetoric is something that I am almost always conscious about and in some way, it's my connection to my collective experiences back home. Someone may ask why I want to stay true to my accent. Does it make me feel like I'm from the hood when I talk in my accent? Is it a reminder of home? Is it just refusal to comply with the status quo? Is it just me trying to be unique? Or is it me trying to stay connected with my culture? 
in truth, I think it's a mixture of all this. I think a part of me realizes that my accent is unique and wants to stand out because of that. But I also want to feel like I'm the same Nairobi kid who left home in August 2019. Hi, my name is Kate, and here is my story talking about reading and writing in my mother tongue, Korean. It's a gray day in April, and I'm inside the biggest underground bookstore I've ever been to. It sprawls. Wooden floors and wooden bookshelves, textbooks, essay collections, cookbooks, all washed in warm overhead light. The back door of Kyobo Books opens straight to the Seoul subway. A few weeks into my five-month trip in Seoul, I head over to the foreign book section by instinct. It's quite extensive, collections of English-language classics and bestsellers lined up on the shelves. Every time I visited with my family, I've sat here and indulged in a few pages of Jane Eyre, Pachinko, Normal People, snippets of English literature in a world of Korean. It's not like I couldn't immerse myself in Korean, though. Moving from Seoul at a young age, frequent long visits to see family, my parents' unwavering dedication to retain and improve our Korean means I'm essentially fluent in speaking, reading, and writing the language to where I'm treated and therefore strangely feel like just another Korean girl. Instead of enjoying my ability to blend in, I clung to external proof of my Americanness to show that I was somehow cooler, better. I bought English books at Kyobo and read them on the subway, talked in loud English with my sister and sometimes even with my parents, who I spoke Korean with at home. This trip, though, I was navigating Seoul alone. That meant speaking Korean with everyone I saw, relying on my mother tongue to read directions and visa forms, cracking jokes with the ajumas at street food stalls. As Korean began to feel more natural, inklings of a familiar fear crept into my mind. In improving my Korean, was I somehow losing my English? Every immigrant child has felt the ingrained desire to assimilate, to never have an accent, the strange humiliation of pronouncing a word wrong because you've only read, not heard it. But for me, familiarity and flow in a language is more than that. As a writer, it is a frantically evolving, elusive relationship. It is a lifeline on which the craft depends. But halfway through my gap year, I was feeling stuck creatively. I wanted to read something new so as to write something new. And when none of the books set out in the English section caught my eye, I decided to browse a section I'd never walked through before, Korean novels. It was daunting and unfamiliar. No Pulitzer Prizes or National Book Awards to look for. I didn't even recognize the authors or newspapers whose reviews were on the back covers. Instead, I found myself focusing on the blurbs, the storylines, and often the cover art. In between two large stacks of other popular novels, I found a short story collection. The cover was pink with a green-haired girl in the center. I flipped to the first page. Have you ever loved someone with a disappearing finger? I bought the book. The stories were set in science fiction worlds, sometimes apocalyptic, but centered around the anxieties and triumphs of younger adults. The writing voice was sharp, but almost nostalgic, bittersweet. In writing, Korean has a nuance that English can lack, where meaning is more often implied than explicitly stated.
To say, yes, I do have this, in Korean is literally to say, yes, it exists. I and have are assumed. The space in between renders Korean an incredibly literary language to me, affecting in its restraint. I savored the stories, reading on long bus rides, in dessert cafes, on a picnic blanket by the Han River. It was only after I'd finished the book that I read the author's afterward, where she mentioned, In many of these stories, you were never actually told the gender of the characters. I wanted it to be that way to challenge your own prejudice. I'm thankful that this is possible in a language like Korean. It's true. I'd formed my own image of the characters without even noticing the gender had never been clarified, an experience that would be impossible to suddenly pull off in English. After that first book, I read three other Korean novels. Each revealed new capabilities Korean provided, dialogue that felt familiar to my own family, whole paragraphs without a subject, and naturally shorter, more impactful sentences. While reading them, I began to try writing a story in Korean as well. Even now, as I reintegrate into Princeton, I'm attempting to bring some of those techniques to life in my writing in English. It's strange, letting this familial, familiar language into the artistic realm, but it has allowed me to appreciate my relationship to the language and all languages. I once thought my bilingualism was a zero-sum game. My fluency in one language depended on awkwardness in the other. But just as there is no objective gauge of fluency, there is no objective way to relate to a language. I own Korean and own English as much as anyone else, which is to say I don't own them at all. In fact, the state of surrender, of acceptance and celebration of constant flux and flow, has only made me more sensitive to what is even in the realm of possibility to express. This fluidity constantly renders the process of writing, making life with words, a mysterious, magical act. This episode was hosted by me, Amanda Bond, and was produced by Dr. Sean Gonzalez. Thanks to Lauren Ong for her support of this episode and to Dream Haven for the music used in this episode. Tigers in Translation was originally developed with support from the Rapid Response Magic Project of the Princeton University Humanities Council.